0: Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 27th of April 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your hosts today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. We're delighted to be joined uh, by Alex Thompson and Debbie Evans. And we'll
1: get uh, kicked off straight away with uh, the wonderful Ursula von der Leyen, who was uh, tweeting this out this morning Gazprom's announcement that is another attempt by Russia to blackmail us with gas, as of course is the announcement by Gazprom. Uh, that they're cutting off gas to Poland uh, and Bulgaria because uh, those two countries have refused to pay in rubles. Um, Von der Lien said, we're prepared for this scenario. We're mapping out our coordinated EU response. Uh, So here she did uh, produce a statement and it said uh, this, uh, the announcement by Gazprom that is unilaterally stopping delivery of gas to customers in Europe is yet another attempt by Russia to use gas as an instrument of blackmail. Uh, This is unjustified and unacceptable. It shows once again, the unreliability of Russia as a gas supplier. Uh, Brian, you're smiling because this is just, it's obscene really, isn't it? Member States have put in place contingency plans for just such a scenario. And we worked with them in coordination and solidarity. A meeting of the gas coordination group is taking place right now. uh, And Europeans can trust, trust in the European Commission. Europeans can trust that we stand united and in full solidarity with the member states impacted in the face of this new challenge, Europeans can count on our full support. So they must be feeling much better uh, knowing that. Uh, But Alex, uh, I wonder what your thoughts are on this. I mean, we've been reporting for the last uh, uh, couple of weeks that uh, Russia was intending to uh, switch off gas to countries unless they paid in rubles. So there should be nothing unexpected about this, but to suggest that this is blackmail by Russia when the EU along with all its member states, the UK and the United States, amongst others, is pumping arms into Ukraine. uh, And, you know, how is that blackmail? You're going to have to explain it to me because I don't get it.
2: Well, it's not the first time that the uh, empty accusation of blackmail has come. Uh, New Year 2006, I well remember. It was the Ukrainians. It wasn't a currency quibble. It was a bad debt issue then. Um, They were uh, taking gas for which Gazprom was no longer supplying them, but rather using them as a conduit for European countries. Uh, And in 2006, after warning at midnight on New Year's Day, uh, the Russians cut the volume uh, by the amount that the ukrainians were supposed to be taking for themselves and this was presented as leaving europe to shiver uh, so it's it's uh, it goes back a long way and it also often has to do with the intransigence of certain eastern european countries uh, if i understand technically It's not that the new arrangements are that Russia insists on ruble settlement per se but rather that settlement be made in a hard currency of the country's own nomination uh, at a bank which is beyond the reach of uh, European and US sanctions. So you can apparently play in rubles or dinars as long as you pay Gazprom in a Moscow bank and that seems to be the sticking point.
1: Um, well, the price of gas went up by 24% initially this morning on that news, it fell back quite quickly to, well, when I looked at 10am this morning, it was about 6% rise on the day. And I think it went, it fell even further to about 3% uh, just before we came on air. So so it hasn't really, on beyond the, the initial response, hasn't had a major impact on gas prices. But nonetheless, the European Commission has agreed to allow Spain and Portugal to put a cap on gas prices. Prices, uh, for or prices for gas and coal used for power stations in those countries, at forty euros per megawatt hour, um. And well, we'll see what else they might do, uh, but in the meantime, let's have a look at, at this, Alex, because I just wanted to uh, sort of highlight the hypocrisy of this particular story. So this is uh, uh, headline saying U.S. to respond if China puts military base on Solomon Islands, uh, and this is according to the the White House, um. And uh, So China has made an agreement with the Solomon Islands, uh, and it looks like there's gonna be a military base established there. Um, But I just wanted to to make this kind of contrast, because if we think about what the Russians were saying, and I'm just using Sergei Lavrov as as an example, uh, they were saying before they started this military operation, there can be no further expansion of NATO eastwards. And the West, and I'm just using Boris as an example, but I mean, this was a, a common narrative right across the West saying, Forget it, moron, Uh, Ukraine is a sovereign nation and can make its own decisions. So we take that situation uh, where Russia is saying, look, we're feeling very uncomfortable about uh, Ukraine joining NATO because that brings NATO right up to our borders. And the West saying, "You know, go away. Uh, And then we compare this. So uh, here's uh, Xi Jinping saying, didn't say this specifically, but this is what the Chinese are doing. They're saying, we're establishing a permanent military base on the Solomon Islands. Uh, and this is what uh, the White House have said, if steps are taken to establish a de facto permanent military presence, power projection capabilities, or a military installation, the United States would then have significant concerns and respond accordingly. And this, I just find this absolutely spectacular levels of hypocrisy, Alex, as, as the United States suddenly get worried about, or claiming to get worried about China establishing a military base uh, beyond where they've been before, in other words, they're claiming Chinese expansionism, and yet uh, you know it's perfectly acceptable for NATO to expand wherever it likes.
2: It does seem to be one rule for thee and another for me, yes. Um, the Chinese now have their first base in Africa, in Djibouti. They may want one in time on the Atlantic side of Africa or even in Latin America. Uh, we shall see, but this is, uh, this pales into insignificance compared with the dozens and dozens of US bases ringing China and indeed the Russian Federation and Iran. Uh, the Solomon Islands as a base is not the first in the Pacific for the Chinese, though it may be the first to be profiled as military. Um, there's been a tussle between the PR China and Taiwan or Nationalist China over recognition by Pacific mini-states, many of which have been bribed by each site to recognize them. So Vanuatu and Kiribati or the Gilbert Islands have seen that. That, um, uh, process in the past. The Solomon Islands is maybe going a step further with a Chinese Navy and, and Marine base, uh, but they're not a serious player anyway. I was actually at boarding school with the son of the former Australian High Commissioner in Honiara and while he was there he was accused of such a degree of espionage that they were saying he was swimming out from the High Commission in the middle of the night to an Australian warship anchored in the bay to receive secret instructions. I mean, there's this kind of stone-edge level uh, espionage uh, accusations one way and the other in in many of these countries in Melanesia. Uh, so quite what kind of power protect, projection you're going to get from there and whether the Chinese themselves are going to have a, a royal welcome, I severely doubt.
1: Yeah. Uh, Alex, your audio is just a bit dodgy again there. So if you could, uh, while we're doing the next segment, uh, reset that.
0: Okay, well, let's put on screen the headline that, of course, hasn't appeared, but it seems to be the reality, because effectively, UK has declared war on Russia. Uh, The BBC doesn't want to talk about this, but let's have a look at the steps. Uh, The UK is providing weapons and munitions to kill Russian troops. Uh, UK military personnel, including SAS Special Forces, And others, we believe, are fighting in Ukraine itself to kill Russian forces. Uh, The UK is providing military intelligence to undermine the Russian military operations. And if we follow on through, we're providing military assistance to launch, fly, and maintain both surveillance and weapons delivery drones attacking Russian forces. Uh, The UK is encouraging British and foreign mercenaries to fight and kill Russian troops. The UK is using propaganda to undermine the Russian military effort. And the UK is attacking the Russian economy. Uh, When you put those things together, Mike, it seems pretty clear that we are at war with Russia. It's just that the uh, British government under Boris Johnson hasn't bothered to tell the UK public that that's actually the situation at the moment. And if Boris is for war, then, of course, this lady, Liz Truss, is really uh, going for it. Here's the BBC headline, Ukraine, the West should provide warplanes. We've put a bit of our own comment in here. We're saying that Liz Truss wants to ramp up the violence. She wants weapons, munitions, tanks, aeroplanes. She wants to get the war machine going. She wants to get killing Russians and Ukrainians. And, of course, amongst that killing... Uh, she's going to be assisting in the killing of men, women and children. This is what she said. In fact, the fate of Ukraine remains in the balance. The West cannot be complacent. If Putin succeeds, there will be untold further misery across Europe and terrible consequences across the globe. We we would never feel safe again. Well, many people, of course, don't feel safe with Liz Truss as Foreign Secretary for War, as we've labelled her. Uh, she said... Um, Heavy weapons, tanks, aeroplanes digging deep into our inventories, ramping up production. We need to do all of this. We're at war, Mike. Yes. No question. We are at war. Alex, just a very quick response before we move on to another minister for war. But it's very clear that the UK is at war. It's just that we haven't had the, the uh, formal declaration to inform the Russians.
2: Well, our generals have stood on think tank podiums, notably the Royal United Services Institute in the heart of Whitehall, and have said, That's from now on, there's no war and peace. There's just hybrid war. There isn't going to be an equivalent of the September 1939 broadcast with the prime minister solemnly declaring that this country is at now at war with Germany or Russia in this case. Nevertheless, here on the European continent, many speeches by quite ordinary people, uh, local politicians, trade union representatives. I'm hearing them start or rhetorically end by saying, and let's remember we're at war with Russia. So again, there's less secret about this on the continent than there is in Britain.
0: Yeah, thank you for that. Well, let's move on to Defense Minister James uh, Heapy, because he's been backing uh, the use of British weapons to actually attack the Russians. So no messing around with this. Uh, Weapons going to the Ukrainians. Yep, they can be used to actually conduct attacks inside Russia itself. So we've got a little video clip of him speaking. Let's listen to what this gentleman had to say.
2: The question is, is it acceptable for
1: our weapon systems to be used against legitimate Russian military targets by the Ukrainians? And firstly, it's the Ukrainians who take the targeting decision, not the people who manufacture or export the kit in the first place. And secondly, it is entirely legitimate to go after military targets in the depth of your opponents to disrupt their logistics and supply lines. Just as, to be frank, providing the Russians um, don't target civilians, which unfortunately they've not taken too much regard for thus far, but
2: it's perfectly legitimate for them to be striking targets in Western Ukraine to disrupt Ukrainian supply lines.
0: I find this, uh, I find this quite in astonishing and immensely dangerous. Let's just focus in a bit on what he had to say by having a look at this uh, as a text. So he's saying, unquoted, widely quoted, as saying this, it's completely legitimate for Ukraine to be targeting in Russia's depth, that means inside Russia, in order to disrupt the logistics that if they weren't disrupted would directly contribute to death and carnage on Ukrainian soil. My response to that is so presumably then it's fine for the Russians to attack the UK in order to stop that chain.
1: Uh, That seems to be what he's saying.
0: Well, okay, it goes on here. It's not necessarily a problem if British donated weapons are used to hit sites on Russian soil, after accepting that weapons now being supplied by allies to allies to Ukraine have the range to be used over borders, so this this is like well, to me he's like some schoolboy who's who's off thinking that he's <laughs> he's playing um, cowboys and Indians. I, <laughs> I I find it very hard to get into the mind of this of this young man. There are lots of countries around the world that operate kit that they have imported from other countries. When those bits of kit are used, we tend not to blame the country that manufacture it. You blame the country that fired it. You notice he's not talking about ammunition and explosives. He doesn't want to talk about that because that ultimately means that what this man is doing is peddling death. He talks about kit because this is the sort of this is the okay way of describing it.
1: It's also a completely inaccurate statement because of course, Britain and BAE systems have been heavily criticized over the years for supplying weaponry to Saudi Arabia for use in uh, Yemen, for example. Uh, And uh, so it's not the case that countries don't get criticized for supplying weapons. But I would also say there's a difference again between Saudi Arabia coming to the UK and buying a BAE kit in a commercial arrangement. There's a difference between that and the country, the source country, shipping the arms for free over to a country that's at war because that is a very different situation.
0: Yeah, I I would agree with that. Well, if you want more information on James Hepney himself, you can go to his website here uh, and he says that you'll be able to find out about the things he stands for. Well, we now know what he stands for because principally he stands for death. That's what he is peddling and that the death is going to be of Ukrainians and Russians by his bits of military kit. And he's also quite happy that uh, the manufacturers are not going to be held responsible. Presumably the Conservative Party won't. So- Just like vaccines? <laughs> just like vaccines, absolutely. Um, I think we'll pop this image up on the screen. This is uh, South Africa reporting here, but um, the image I think is quite telling. And what have we got underneath it? Um, oh, sorry, and un, un, under his image there, Russia warns of proportional response. And this is the danger of where all this is heading. And if we have a look at uh, Sergei Lavrov's comments here, these weapons will be a legitimate target for the Russian armed forces. Warehouses, including, the west of, including in the west of Ukraine, have become such a target more than once. How else NATO is essentially going to war with Russia through a proxy and arming that proxy. War means war. So the Russians see quite clearly, they said NATO, but of course that includes UK. UK is at war with Russia, uh, but Boris Johnson doesn't see fit to make this clear to the people of UK. So if the Russians want to attack the supply lines, which they're easily capable of doing, that means any site in UK could be attacked whenever the Russians choose, as a result of this disastrous uh, policy. Let's just have a listen to this, or a look at this little video clip uh, with the former uh, US Marine Corps, Scott Ritter, uh, talking about the situation in Ukraine.
3: And I believe that Lloyd Austin provides the President of the United States with the the soundest advice he can. So I believe the President has been briefed on the inevitable outcome of this conflict, and that the goal right now is to drag this out in hopes of further weakening russia but you know there's people saying it's a throwaway statement but it's true like, apparently america's willing to fight to the last dead ukrainian because mm-hmm. no american troops are going to die on the ground there um it's going to be ukrainians that die and if we truly cared for the ukrainian people as we claim to we'd be picking up the phone right now and demanding that Zelensky in this conflict because there's the only other the only outcome that's going to happen by extending this more dead Ukrainians.
0: So that's uh, pretty direct. The only thing that's going to happen is more dead Ukrainians. And in the excellent analysis that Scott Ritter gives, he explains why pumping in the weapons is only going to result in more dead Ukrainians. Alex, I don't know whether you'd like to just respond to that before there's a slightly longer clip where he's giving more detail about the situation in Ukraine.
2: Scott Ritter, for those of my age and above who recall, um, has got a a good, long analytical track record. He had the entire American establishment, the deep state, against him when he was the Iraq uh, arms inspector designated by the United Nations. Uh, He faced down many threats to his life, most of which turned out to emanate from Washington rather than from Iraqis. At least the Iraqis had the decency to brandish pistols in his face rather than try to stab him in the back. Uh, I haven't seen him, seen him put a foot wrong. I've done a double-headed appearance with him recently on the uh, Stiftung Corona-Ausschuss with Rainer Filmich, And I was very struck then by how he is a representative, well, slightly above my generation, but the same mould, really. How he takes an all-round, all-sources-of-intelligence, common-sense view of the situation uh, and takes a deep breath before he pronounces. And just regarding heepy as well, a measure of the man's maturity is that uh, he was visiting Millfield, a posh school in his constituency uh, during the 2017 parliamentary uh, cycle of elections. And of course, it had only been a couple of years since the Scottish independence referendum. And a sixth form girl of Scottish origin in the class said she would have voted for Scottish independence. Hippie told her, why don't you expletive back to Scotland then? And later, when challenged, said that it was meant as a joke. So uh, he swears at schoolgirls. That's how mature he is.
0: Okay, thank you for that. Well, let's have a listen to this uh, second uh, uh, comment by Scott Ritter about Ukraine. Um, Alex, uh, you've still got problems with your mic, so maybe that would give you an opportunity to see whether you could correct that. Let's uh, listen to Scott Ritter here.
4: All right, so a friend of mine uh, recently sent me uh, a statement by the CEO of Raytheon, huge arms manufacturer maybe the biggest uh in the world uh in which he basically said and i didn't know this they're not manufacturing equipment for ukraine the american equipment is coming from dod stockpiles in europe mainly in poland or nato stockpiles and the quality of the equipment that we're sending is not the best and much of it is being destroyed i'm paraphrasing this ceo scott Much of it is being destroyed before it's ever even used. And he sort of said this with a little bit of glee, because if that equipment is destroyed, then the government's got to order more and they're going to order it from Raytheon. Is this is this this likely true that he said this is the equipment old and shabby and is the uh, American military industrial complex rejoicing that American equipment is being destroyed so that they can manufacture more of it?
3: Well, I can't speak to the Ameri- to the to the military-industrial complex. I'll take the CEO at, at his word. Um, he apparently is happy about this because this will require uh, the U.S. Congress to allocate more t- U.S. taxpayer dollars to buy more uh, Javelin Javelin C models. I think there's even an uh, an advanced version coming out beyond that. The models that are being provided to the Ukrainians. Understand, you know, we say we want to help the Ukrainians. We're sending them the oldest equipment we have. So man portable, uh, anti-tank weapon, usually fired by a crew of two, one man can fire it. Um, it's a very effective system when new. Uh, it can guide in, it can destroy uh, it can destroy tanks, but the weapons we're sending them are old weapons. The electronics uh, that, that operate the ailerons that guide the missile um, aren't, don't, don't work right, which means when they fire the missile, it's missing the target. Uh, the high explosive warhead, um, oftentimes because it's old, uh, is malfunctioning it's not it's not exploding with full power or not exploding at all which means the missiles is bouncing off the tanks this is why there's anecdotal stories of russian tanks taking six and seven javelin hits uh, and and keep on going frankly speaking when we send this weaponry to the to the ukrainian soldiers we're committing them to die uh they're you know they're, they get up they're very brave soldiers it takes a lot of courage to stand there and fire one of these missiles knowing you're going to receive incoming back, but you do it on the belief that you're going to take out this tank. Um, you're not. You're firing. The Russians are killing you and your missile's mm-hmm. not doing its job. And it's it's just simple suicide. And again, you hit on another point. The vast majority of these missiles that are being shipped aren't making it. They're being blown up in route. Or when they do make it, they go to a warehouse. You know, Right now, the Russians are laughing because they have you know, over a thousand of these missiles in their possession, they've captured them, they're distributing them. Uh, they make videos where they say, hey, uh, thank you for this weapon, we'll be sending it back to you very soon. So, you know, this this is just a, a, a tragic joke of an operation done for purely political purposes. And again, all it's doing is murdering Ukrainian
0: soldiers. So that's pr- pretty explicit uh, as to what's going on here. And of course, who who is he saying is suffering in the first instant? Ukraine, the very country that's receiving these weapons. So, uh, was he talking sense with the fact that the Russians are capturing thousands of, uh, of these sorts of weapons and indeed other weapons? We've got a little video clip here. There's no sound. So, if you're listening into UK column news, there'll be a pause for you. But uh, for those watching the video, just have a look at uh, the scale of this particular weapons dump uh, that, that has fallen into the hands of the Russians. So that little clip showing um, a, um, a destroyed facility, but a lot of the munitions still in, in good condition. A lot of the boxes marked with a checks label, uh, mortar rounds, we had uh, artillery rockets, uh, a huge amount of equipment captured. So as Scott Ritter says, the key is that uh, the Russians are able to uh, take, destroy or reuse the munitions being provided and the Ukrainians at the moment do not have the quality of the forces to use the munitions from the West, even if they even if they arrive at the front line. So here's the BBC um, supposedly weighing up the risk of escalation, and this is James Lansdale. Um, it's it's a very simplistic little article, so we're going to call it naive and simple. What he fails to understand is that the Russians know they can't afford to lose in Ukraine, because if they lose, that means NATO is going to be right on the Russian border with all its offensive weapons. Um, The weapons that are arriving in Ukraine are too little too late and are going to result in even higher Ukrainian casualties. And lastly, if uh, we end up in a direct uh, confrontation between Russia and NATO, That is when the Russians are going to be forced to resort to at least tactical nuclear weapons, because it's impossible for one nation state to fight as many as 40 countries uh, without the use of nuclear weapons.
1: Um, So Anatoly Antonov, the uh, Russian ambassador, still the Russian ambassador somehow, uh, said that you know, this is what he was quoted as saying, what the Americans are doing is pouring oil in the flames. I can only see an attempt to raise the stakes, to aggravate the situation, to see more losses. Uh, Well, and indeed, uh, even more over the last couple of days, uh, because, uh, well, here's, uh, um, sorry, Ben Wallace. Um, I should just show this picture again. First of all, this is uh, uh, the, the meeting of the defense, the Ukraine defense consultative group, as it's being called, Brian mentioned, 40 countries involved in this. They were discussing the next steps to defend Ukraine from Russia's illegal and unprovoked uh, invasion, as they call it. But here's the key thing. Alex, and I just wanted to get your thoughts on this because the group has decided that they will meet annually. And so what does that say about what the the prospects are for the future? Um, Because they are calling it the Ukraine Defense Consultative Group and they're going to meet annually so this, they're not assuming anything ending anytime soon
2: no in the diplomatic world this is not done unless you're pretty sure and it's also deliberately done ad hoc sometimes in order to have a de facto nato plus plus steering group in place for so we say inner core of nato plus willing partners coalition of the willing for anything outside the ukraine in future i'd also uh, as we've just been speaking about nukes point out that uh, Scott Ritter, who is of very different views to Joel Skousen on Russia, uh, has echoed Joel Skousen, his former uh, Marine's comrade, in warning that of the two great nuclear superpowers, only the Russians still have the doctrine of launch on warning. The US, Skousen and now Ritter seem to have concluded from open sources uh, doesn't have that doctrine and hasn't had since 1997, although many serving officers uh, uh, so sadly still think that they, the US has that doctrine. In other words the US and Britain in its wake are are geared now towards absorbing a first nuclear strike. Only the Russians will launch at the first sign that things are going to go nuclear. So you can guess who's going to win such a confrontation.
1: Yes. So uh, let's have a look at what the US Secretary of Defense uh, was saying about that meeting. Uh, We just kicked off a historic meeting. More than 40 countries gathered together to help Ukraine win win the fight against Russia's unjust invasion. Our goal is to leave here with a common, transparent understanding of Ukraine's short-term And long-term security requirements. Uh, He went on to, and I'm paraphrasing what he said here, but uh, he basically said, you know, asked the question about a negotiated settlement. He basically said, forget it. We intend to keep this war going and bleed Russia dry. We want to see Russia weakened to the degree that it can't do the kinds of things that it has done in invading Iran, uh, invading Ukraine. So uh, that's pretty strong language coming from the American side. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, more expansion or more military uh, collaboration going on because uh, here is MBDA, uh, the UK defence uh, organisation. Uh, and they have just uh, announced that they have agreed, uh, and the UK government has agreed, a contract with the Polish government supporting the early introduction of Poland's future short range air defence system. Uh, and uh, that's so the CEO of the po- Polish Armaments Group uh, and uh, MBDA sales director met and signed an interim capability contract in Warsaw uh, on Monday afternoon, uh, and the first two stages will deliver the Common Anti Air Modular Missile, which is uh, acronym as CAM. Uh, that's a surface air mis- missile, um, and this flies at supersonic speeds, not hypersonic speeds. So they're very excited that this is a a, a defensive system which can deal with high speed uh, incoming weaponry, but not hypersonics. Uh, But Alex, once again, we've got uh, uh, the UK and Poland in some kind of defence collaboration. And then uh, uh, James Heapy, again, if we put this on screen, uh, was talking about uh, uh, Op Cabret. um, And this is uh, part of the enhanced forward presence delivering NATO's commitments. Um, And so uh, he's visiting Warsaw uh, later this week, following up on this agreement uh, between the UK and Warsaw to meet uh, key personnel involved with this operation. But uh, Alex, uh, this is um, something that you know the UK and Poland have had a defense agreement for a little while now. Uh, I, I don't know what you, th- what you think about the fact that we're now sharing uh, or merging uh, defensive or so-called defensive technologies.
2: It's the stage we were at in the late 30s, isn't it, when the bogeyman was Germany. Um, MBDA, uh, the Association of Arms Manufacturers uh, as a lobby group, has been at the forefront of driving Britain's uh, push for European military unification for several years. They were particularly closely embedded with Labour Party policymakers, but not to the exclusion of Conservative Party policymakers in pushing that agenda. Um, Whether the engineering is there. The the US is sounding warnings that it doesn't have the engineering capacity anymore to do a sudden upswing in conventional arms manufacture is open to question. The Americans are also now being honest enough to say that they have a a, a looming crisis with the at-scale production of energetics, in layman's terms, explosives for various armaments. Perhaps they're thinking that ultra-high-tech supersonic is the way to go in order to obviate the need for lots of troops and lots of conventional things that go bang, but I doubt it.
1: Yes. But speaking of uh, uh, EU defence, is there an EU army coming? Uh, Foreign policy seems to think so.
2: Foreign policy magazine in the United States does think so. Notice the uh, interesting sort of glamorous charcoal sketch here of the author of this piece which is getting quite standard for self-regarding titles. Foreign policy is not to be confused with Foreign Affairs, the in-house journal of the Council on Foreign Relations. I've made that mistake on air recently for which my apologies. Foreign policy however is certainly influential to beltway policy makers and we see here that they are uh, interviewing the um, head effectively of the European military unification structures There he is in all his glory, the Italian general who has been elected by his fellow chiefs of staff of the European Union um, member states to be the head of the military effort. Uh, We read here about the military committee, General Claudio Graziano in charge, posing outside the Carabinieri or Gendarme headquarters, previously a very highly regarded mountain warfare general in the uh, elite uh, uh, Italian Alpine Mountain Infantry. Well, he's talking to the Americans here about the state. Uh, stage which EU military unification has reached. And when he's asked, does the Ukrainian government come to the EU military staff directly with requests for military assistance, Gratian replies, it works a bit differently. The Ukrainians tell us what they need. The EU member states check what they have. And I think he's not, he's not mentioning here that many of them are scraping the bottle of the barrel of their inventory at that stage and what they can give to the Ukrainians. And we, through the European Union military staff, so not bilateral anymore, function as the clearinghouse. Uh, He goes on to say uh, that regarding lethal weapons, we're sending whatever the Ukrainians need most for example, ammunition and anti-tank weapons, Well, we've just covered that in a segment. Gratiana says this will help the Ukrainians fight for freedom and their will to do so is the most important surprise in this war. Gratiana is a very experienced man and I don't think he personally is surprised. I think he is uh, diplomatically suggesting that many uh, European and American defense policymakers assumed that they would go to sea like the Afghans did, you know, as if there were no differences between the Ukrainians and the Afghans in their organization. So it's a bit telling that I think he personally is not uh, surprised by that. He then says, pardon me, I've gone too quickly, um, that if I just I'll, advance I'll, that a couple...
1: I'll, I'll do that, Alex, you, you just keep... Thank speaking. you, yes,
2: if you just... Yes, he, he then says at the end of this interview, there's a bit of latency with my advancing of the slides, that as part of the effort, this actually comes earlier in the interview, so it's not a direct segue from what he's just said, we will start developing an EU rapid deployment capacity that will give us the chance to deploy deploy a modular and multi-domain, I think that's polite military speak for ragtag force of up to 5,000 troops that can intervene in non-permissive environment, in other words, infiltrate towards the Russians. And he's talking about the strategic enabling role that the EU military union now has, which in the past would have been up to the Americans, heavy airlift. C4, command and control structures, strategic air, intelligence surveillance, so that would be the big expensive airborne and seaborne assets that the Americans at the moment are providing, recon, cyber defense, unmanned aerial vehicles, so drones, et cetera. So you can see um, the way things are going. Now, over at the drive and their sub um, uh, header or their, their rubric called the war zone, they're reporting, and this may be a clerical error on the part of the Americans, but they have indicated um, in, in their budget for the next year that nuclear bombs may be headed back to RAF Lakenheath in Suffolk. It's the Federation of American Scientists. And if you follow the link that's shown on the page, you can find that original paper who brought attention to this single line. Uh, Let's see the original graphic that was provided there by um, the the United States uh, Defense. Or, or, or Department of Defense for its budget requirements for next year, it ringed in red by uh, the Federation of American Scientists, is this possible clerical error or possibly not? Mentioning for the first time since 2008, when the um, heavy bombers with nuclear arms were were, were removed from RAF Lake and mentioning Britain again as a country that should upgrade its security measures and other facilities in order to receive um, nuclear bombs again. Uh, uniquely, the British wouldn't be uh, dropping these themselves from the air, unlike the other countries mentioned that we now know have American nukes on, on their soil, Belgium, the Netherlands, Germany, Italy, and Turkey. No, in the case of Britain, it would be over to the uh, US Air Force directly to drop these. And um, if you tap that again, because the uh, the thing has stuck again, uh, we see that uh, it's a new kind of bomber, the b sixty one twelve, that the US Air Force is regarding as uh, its strategic system. So the hint is, in the past, it was just a tactical asset, but now the B61-12 has been given precision guidance system and an inertial package and so on, and this will enable uh, more things uh, to be fitted. Whether we, that, anything comes of that or not we don't know. On to Brian's old beat, the Navy. Again this is the US Navy as reported by the Navy Times in Washington. They have a 30-year shipbuilding plan with three options to increase the size of the fleet. Now bear in mind General Graziano just now saying we are taking over the American's heavy role. I think we're beginning to see why. Because the US Navy has had to come up with three options for getting to its totemic figure of a 355 vessel navy again only one of which actually gets there and they put out three options one of which was with an unconstrained budget but the two other ones which don't get to the iconic 355 navy is a budget with no real growth and we see here that the um, uh, those in charge of the the system are getting very worried because vice admiral khan who is the deputy chief for capabilities and warfighting requirements, told reporters that the further away in years you get from this year, 2022, the less certain the future is. And that there's uncertainty, he says, that continues to increase over time in terms of the budget and in terms of Chinese and Russian capabilities and production. So things are not looking good for the Americans to be able to uh, provide the heavy lifts that they have um uh, previously done although heavy lift is not the best uh, idiom for the navy heavy firepower perhaps the navy is current the u.s navy is currently proposing for this financial year ahead that there would only be 280 ships by next uh n- next year military.com has more of the the sharp end of what's going on in the u.s carrier fleets, fleet in the ill-fated Zumwalt class of carriers which the americans have many now mid uh, cycle. they These are supposed to have a massive refit. Brian Batch will talk about that in a moment. This is in the in the forty-year history of a major carrier. It goes in once to have its uh, fuel rods replenished and all, all kinds of refits. This has been delayed, but it's now happening. The uh, carrier in question, the George Washington, is in port in uh, in Virginia. It's now come out. Reporters have totted up what they've been told that there have been ten suicides there in 10 months. So an average of one a month during the year. Sorry, it's not a, um, it's a Zumwalt class, it's a, it's a Nimitz class, the previous class of, of carrier. And so that's why it's mid-career because the Zumwalt is much newer than that. Um, the ship were, was due to be refitted mid mid service last year, but the, it was now put on to this year. Now, um, for sailors, we read here, the de- delays have meant continuing to de- labour un- under unpleasant and taxing conditions. They're having to be in port for a year while the ship is refitted because of these bungles and delays. Uh, If they don't have a housing allowance, they have to live on the ship while the works are going on. Um, The um, news reporters, military.com, have found that actually, that the, that the US is only dragging its heels and now admitting uh, the number of suicides that they've been. They announced three in earlier April and another seven, so that brings us to 10. Uh, what is the problem here? It's that uh, even trying to get onto the vessel in the morning is a bind. Uh, we've, we've got uh, people being quoted here, and I won't read the expletive out, but one sailor says that the attention that the US Navy leadership has given to parking assignments indicates that they care more about that than about people. Task and purpose. Uh, reports that the Marine Corps, which is an independent branch of course in the US, is planning to redesign uh, the Marine Corps completely, but will end up breaking it. So a retired um, US Marine Corps general uh, is uh, is, uh, being uh, quoted here, uh, describing I won't read them out but all the bullet points in which the uh, the current commandant of the US Marine Corps General Berger is basically gutting the US Marine Corps taking it away from its idea of being a, a force within the the force that's able to do everything in air sea and land uh, instead stripping them of tanks and a lot of heavy firepower um, this is this leaves the US Marine Corps isolated perhaps another reason why General Graziano is saying that the Europeans are going to have to do more and more uh, for example, uh, the commandant, according to this uh, comment in Task and Purpose, uh, by, as I say, a retired Marine general, stands virtually alone among the military leaders of the world in his conviction that tanks have no future. I think uh, the last segment has eloquently described that tanks very much do have uh, a future. Um, the Navy Times is also reporting in, in slightly more Uh, should we say cultural issues that the navy is stopping the actions it's taking against uh, servicemen and service women who refuse COVID vaccines other branches of service have also had judicial uh, interdicts put on following that up Uh, another indication that the us navy is not uh, a happy place and i'm sorry i've advanced that slide too much Uh, but there we are an end of a segment heavy on the us navy from me there indicating that it's not a happy place brian may wish to comment
0: Well, I think my immediate comment is that uh, we're also seeing this through other Western military forces, the UK uh, in particular, that whilst there's an increasing rhetoric that we are going to go to war at some stage with the Russians or the Chinese, if you look at what is happening with UK military equipment and capability, it is declining and very rapidly. The only thing within the military which increases is the intersectionality agenda, uh, which seems to take priority over proper uh, um, military capability. Um, America has followed this through. The suicides there, obviously tragic. Um, Draconian systems within American ships, and I can imagine that being Uh, living on board an aircraft carrier in refit would be a pretty unpleasant experience, particularly if you're having to get up at four o'clock in the morning in order to be on board at six when then you're not getting home until six at night. Uh, So I think there's some real questions to be asked to the American military. But is the American military in decline? Absolutely.
1: Uh, well, it may be, but the spending isn't. So, uh, yes, you've got a, a quick uh, preview of this, but this is uh, the uh, Stockholm International Peace Research Institute uh, have done their usual uh, expose of, of how much money is being spent on uh, defence uh, globally. It has passed $2 trillion for the first time, they say. It's actually $2.113 trillion dollars. The five largest spenders in 2021 were the United States, China, India, the UK, and Russia, uh, together accounting for 62% of the expenditure, they say. Uh, And other notable developments, they're saying that in 2021, Iran's military budget increased for the first time in four years. Uh, Eight European North Atlantic Treaty Organization members uh, reached the target of 2% or more of GDP on their armed forces. Uh, Nigeria raised its military spending by 56% in 2021. Germany, obviously, we've covered that uh, recently, has also increased their military spending. Uh, Qatar's military spending was uh, 11.6 billion, making it the fifth largest spender in the Middle East. Uh, And India's military spending went up to uh, uh, 76.6 billion, which is the third highest in the world. And speaking of India, of course, last Friday, we were talking about uh, Boris heading off to India in an effort to split India away from Russia. And offering all kinds of trade deals uh, and deals to launch uh, UK, uh, well, pseudo defence satellites and so on. Um, well, no sooner uh, was Boris back than Ursula von der Leyen was away over to India to try to do the same thing. Uh, so let's just have a brief listen to what she had to say in her keynote speech.
5: As vibrant democracies, India and the European Union share fundamental values and common interests for the European Union strengthening and energizing its partnership with India is a priority in this upcoming decade however our values are not shared by everyone we all see the rising challenges to our open and free societies in Europe we see Russia's aggression as a direct threat to our security Our response to Russia's aggression today will decide the future of both the international system and the global economy. And on this foundation of engagement in the Indo-Pacific region, we seek to build a new common agenda for the 21st century. We are the two largest democracies in the world. And together, we have a lot to give to the benefit for the benefit of the people.
1: Excellent. So a rousing final sentence, but uh, uh, this is uh, what she went on to say. The key is that we want to bring forward this relationship, work on technology together and bring India into our camp. Uh, That's the main message of her visit. So she's absolutely clear that that the agenda there was to split uh, India away from Russia if they possibly could.
0: Yeah, um, in our
1: camp. That's exactly it. Um, So let's move on to NATO and uh, NATO countries at least. Uh, First of all, we've got Exercise Bold Dragon here on screen. Uh, That uh, looks very exciting. Uh, Troops from the UK, Estonia, France, Denmark conducting battle drills to train allies and partners to enhance their readiness and capabilities. So this is part of NATO's Enhanced Forward Presence Battle Group in Estonia. Uh, And uh, so yet another exercise taking place right on the uh, edges of Russian uh, territory. And uh, so the USA and the UK accounted for the largest part of the Allied forces. Um, This was a pre-planned 10-day exercise of both company and battle group level training and had one mission to capture and destroy enemy ground forces and repel any attacks. So, of course, they used the usual uh, nonsense about the scenario having nothing to do with Russia when, in fact, it was. Uh, But let's... uh, Bring foreign affairs uh, on the screen here. And of course, Alex, this is the publication of the Council on Foreign Relations uh, and Foreign Affairs talking about NATO's Nordic expansion, uh, adding Finland and Sweden will transform European security. I'm just going to say you heard it here first, folks, because we were telling you that this was going to happen back in January 2022, uh, as uh, Ben Wallace and uh, uh, Liz Truss were busy trying to uh, persuade the various and Boris Johnson trying to persuade Sweden and Finland to join NATO. and so they have now, according to the Scandinavian press anyway, decided that they're going to make a joint or at least they're going to make an announcement at the say, a coordinated announcement is the word of their intention to join and they're talking about, although they're saying that they haven't decided on a specific date yet, the time scales that they're talking about, Alex are as they say weeks and not months. Um, And so what is Russia supposed to think of this?
2: Um, Well, they've already said that they would have a major rethink of how they uh, arrange the um, military districts in the west of the country. Uh, The two uh, prime ministers, of Finland and Sweden, have been making noises about this. They are not constitutionally hampered from joining NATO in the way that Austria and the Irish Republic are, uh, but it's still an unfriendly act. Uh, The Russians don't have the term... Finlandization for nothing. Uh, the Finland, uh, the, the Finland was, perhaps for understandable reasons, allied with Germany in the Second World War, but it was territorially punished after the war. And ever since then, it sought agreement, so back-channel nods from Moscow for the appointments of president and prime minister. Uh, so that, that arrangement is going to have to go by the board. And uh, if you can't Finlandize a country on your border, i.e. reach a, a, an, agree, an, an undertaking of neutrality, or at least non-hostility, you're going to have to up the ante militarily uh at least in a defensive posture bear in mind of course that some of the scandinavian countries and indeed the netherlands where i'm speaking from uh conscript young women as well as young men now so uh, although putin has with with uncertain accuracy been accused of sending conscripts into the ukraine it does, now looks like the first conscripts sent to the russian front will be scandinavian girls from the western side
1: yes Okay, uh, well, if you like what the UK Column does, you would like to support us, then please head over to community.ukcolumn.org, and there are options for you to join us there, and that would be very much appreciated. Uh, Or you could uh, support us via the UK Column shop at shop.ukcolumn.org, or you could share our material on the various platforms. And I'd just like to remind everybody once again of this event, the Northern Lights Convention, uh, taking place the 13th to the 15th of May uh in malmo and sweden and uh many fantastic speakers at that there's that a live event uh, it will be live streamed as well being organized by children's health defense and others uh and uh so if you are in that part of the world you should uh have a look at going to that i think Yep. um now uh let's just bring this on screen uh, an early day motion uh, was tabled on the 25th of april Uh, and it's entitled The Campaign to Oppose Extradition of Julian Assange to the the USA. Sorry, Uh, and the motion text says that this house notes that Julian Assange faces extradition to the USA and a prison sentence of up to 175 years in a super maximum security prison for his journalism work, uh, and so on. So um, early day motion, of course, well, Alex can say a little bit more about it in a second, doesn't have any particular uh, standing other than to allow Uh, MPs to put their positions on record. So let's look at which MPs have done uh, so far. We've got the likes of Jeremy Corbyn, who of course is uh, uh, independent now since he lost the whip, uh, and uh, John McDonnell and some SNP uh, MPs in there. We've got uh, uh, Caroline Lucas as well. Uh, They're all sponsoring the bill and a number of them uh, supporting the bill. I think, Alex, this would be uh, something that people really should be pressuring their MPs uh, to support.
2: Yes, of course, uh, many of the bloggers and even the the former quality press will be deriding the signatories of this early day motion as far left. But that just tells us more about the cowardice and the whipping of everyone else in the House of Commons. Of course, as you say, early day motions have no um, legal weight, but they can show which way the groundswell of opinion is and how the more honest MPs uh, are representing national sentiment. And they can lead somewhere in the end, for example, through a private members bill, if the government gives it time. Uh, But of course, Corbyn and MacDonald, were signatories nearly a decade ago now of the Bradbury Pound advocating early day motion. And uh, when they actually came to lead their party, uh, they looked the other way and uh, forgot about money creation and the, the nefarious uh, goings on there. So it, you, you you shouldn't pin all your hopes on people signing an early day motion because in their parliamentary career, they can move on from it unless you hold their feet to the fire.
1: Uh, that's true. But it's, of course, they're holding the feet to the fire. That's the important bit. But uh, if we stick with uh, the press and freedom of the press for the moment... I'm going to say that while Julian Assange should be supported in this regard, perhaps the Daily Mail uh, shouldn't be. Uh, so this is their comment this morning over the Angela Rayner scandal. So the Daily Mail comment, a sinister threat to clip the press's wings. Uh, and they say that in 1957, the Sunday Express editor was summoned to Parliament to be re- and reprimanded for publishing an article about MPs dodging petrol rationing in the wake of Suez. Uh, the bombshell scoop was true, and Sir John Jr. became the last Non politicians so rebuked. Today there's been a chilling echo of that threat to press freedom. The trigger, a story in our sister newspaper, The Mail on Sunday. It reported a Tory MP's claims that Angela Rayner had admitted using her legs to distract Boris Johnson during Prime Minister's questions. Q Fury, Mrs. Rayner, was apoplectic with rage. There was a storm of criticism on social media and the common speaker rounding the story misogynistic and offensive furiously vowed to haul the papers editor for uh, into the parliament for an explanation some politicians even called for the journalist who wrote the story to be stripped of his comments pass uh, the mail abhors sexism sexism and misogyny in all its forms and many will despair that so much energy and attention is focused on what they consider a trivial matter uh, against the backdrop of a war in Europe, yet for democracy to function effectively, journalists must be free to report what they are told by MPs about conversations and events in Westminster, however unsavoury. And I just actually, I'm gonna ask Debbie, what do you think of this? Say welcome to the programme Debbie, because uh, to my mind, this is the most disgraceful hypocrisy once again, uh, where we have the Daily Mail that has uh, without question, pushed the government narrative over COVID for the last two years is pushing the government narrative over Ukraine and then complains uh, whenever they're criticised for what is otherwise a pretty pathetic uh, story and article in the first place.
6: Uh, I'm I'm speechless, Mike, I'm seeing all of these stories popping up. um, And yet there's no debate still on the vaccines and serious adverse reactions. We're getting um, inquiries, investigations, all sorts of things popping up, and yet the, debate, the debates that we need to have are just still being ignored. So, yeah, I'm disappointed and, well, actually, I'm quite horrified, really, that we're ignoring so many huge stories when we're looking at, at things like this.
0: Thank you for that, Debbie. Of course, Debbie, you also you also feel, as I'm sure many other people do at the moment, that the the, uh, the news is completely dominated by Ukraine. Um, Should there be reporting on Ukraine? Certainly there should. Um, But of course, we've got so many important things going on under the surface. Now, you took a a trip down to Truro uh, last Saturday where a number of people were there to speak out about what's been happening around uh, vaccines and vaccinations. Uh, before we look at a couple of little uh, clips of what you had to say to the assembled company, tell us a little bit about the atmosphere of that uh, day on Saturday.
6: Well, you know, it was it was really a lovely atmosphere, but it was a very serious message. This was with regards to specific vaccinations on children. So a very, very serious message indeed, um, and probably around about 50 or 60 people. Um, Great atmosphere. Um, I met the uh, wonderful Rob Ryder. Uh, I know that you've shown his book before, but um, Medical Fascism, uh, I saw Rob Ryder. I picked up the latest copy of The Lights. So there was plenty of information, plenty of um, exchanges, and and it was really interesting to, to, to meet people, so many viewers from the UK column, But also one amazing lady who told me that her daughter, who'd been in uh, the maternity unit at the Royal College, um, uh, well, at Trillisk Hospital in in, in Cornwall, um, she'd been there for years and she was very disturbed to find that pregnant women were being offered the jab, literally the second they came out of theater after either having a cesarean or having delivered their babies. I mean, they were literally, some of them weren't even conscious and this disturbed her greatly that the that the focus of attention was now you've had your baby now we can vaccinate you so it was a very serious message um but it was delivered in a in a very measured reasonable peaceful um happy environment so it was and and thank you to the organizers for inviting me down there because it was great great to meet so many UK column uh, viewers
0: Okay, Debbie, thank you for that. Well, we're going to have a look at the first of two little uh, video clips. The video quality is not that good, but the audio is absolutely fine. You uh, started off by speaking out and telling people that GPs don't know what's in the vaccines. Let's have a listen to this clip.
7: Oh, hello, Debbie.
6: (laughs) Everybody, Debbie from UK Column. (laughs) Um, I'm here from UK Column and anybody that doesn't watch it please do tune in as we try to get the truth out. I've made a few notes but they're just bullet points really. Is that that better? Can you hear me now? I'm not used to this. Right so what I want to say first of all is that for me as a trained nurse my golden rule and I think that of most medical professionals is that you never never ever ever experiment 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 on pregnant pregnant women, women, their unborn unborn babies babies, or children. children. End End of. It's It's as simple as that. It should never ever be done. I'd also like to say that I now have cast iron proof from the Royal College of General Practitioners that doctors are not aware of the injections, what's in them, the ingredients, or the serious adverse events that may happen as a result. This was put in writing to me by the Royal College of General Practitioners Honourable Secretary. So my question to every single GP that is still working within the NHS, vaccinating everyone, including our children, is how can you give us the safety and security that what you're about to inject in us is safe if you don't know what's in it. That means informed consent does not exist. Does everyone understand that? Informed consent no longer exists. So every doctor that you are seeing vaccinate people will not know the ingredients of that injection. If anybody would like to see that letter, if anybody would like a copy of that letter, if you go onto Dr. David Cartland's Telegram page, you'll see it there. And it's also been on UK column.
0: So, Debbie, you were very clear with that. And it's an extraordinary thing to say, isn't it, that GPs, um, a profession that for many, many years, people have trusted absolutely, that GPs handing vaccines out like uh, sweeties, and yet they have no clue what's what's in them.
6: No, I mean, it's extraordinary, isn't it? It's uh, it's, it's It's really that simple. And, you know, this COVID vaccination, I believe that everyone that has taken the vaccination has either had to sign informed consent, a, a, a natural paper form, or they've had to give verbal consent. Now, I've, I've never remembered doing that before in my lifetime when I've had the traditional flu vaccine, which I've had in the past, and I've often said this. Um, so the fact that The fact that patients are signing an informed consent when the people asking them to sign that consent don't know what's in the injection to be able to give the information to consent is crazy. And you know, we've been asking and Mike's certainly been asking many, many times about the risk assessment as you have, Brian. And clearly from the MHRA board meeting, there doesn't appear ever to have been a risk assessment done because Alison Cave said that the risk would depend on the patient. So depending, the risk would be different for everyone. So basically, it's such a complex situation, I don't believe that a risk assessment has ever been done. So the fact that I'm actually saying informed consent has actually never taken place, I would suggest that that would be may be interpreted as criminal assault um, on mass. So and I think with the evidence that we have from the MHRA freedom of informations, the evidence that we have from the MHRA board meetings, and the evidence that all the viewers and listeners have been sending me, it would appear that these injections are illegal. And I would really be grateful to a barrister or maybe Lord Sumption if he's watching, to maybe take a close look at this, because clearly no one has received informed consent. If doctors don't know what's in the ingre- uh, what the ingredients or the serious adverse reactions are going to be, then I would imagine that nurses don't either. So there lies the question: you know, has the government made us sign informed consent when nobody's actually been informed?
0: Well, that's certainly how it appears, uh, Debbie. Now, in the second little clip we got here, uh, you were warning quite rightly that the MHRA doesn't even have co- um, confidence in its own statistics and data, particularly within the yellow card system. Yeah. Uh, let's play this second little clip.
6: The other, other points that, that I want to make, make is that the, the M-H-R-A, MHRA are printing, printing out inaccurate data. data. They put up on their website on serious adverse reactions that there was a report of an anencephalic baby being born. An anachephalic baby is a baby that's born with very, very little brain. They don't survive for very long, sometimes days. The MHRA was also reporting neural tube defects. I questioned the MHRA directly, Dame June Rain, and the answer was surprising. They said they'd made a mistake. They said their data was wrong. I have it in writing from the MHRA. June Rain says the vaccines are very safe. The MHRA has no S in it. There's no Medicines Health Regulatory Safety Authority. The MHRA are ignoring, refusing to, to debate, and obfuscating the truth. Dame, Dame June Rain and Dr Alison Cave, Chief Safety Officers, are deliberately, in my opinion, misleading the public and misleading parents.
0: Well, you, you've said it there, in your opinion they're misleading the public. That's the same opinion that I hold, and I think the evidence is there. Um, if we could uh, get the people who need to look at that evidence um, to take into account the data. Uh, Sorry. Can- yeah,
1: but I was just going to say, Brian, just to, because people have been asking why the yellow card uh, our yellow card website right. hadn't been updated for the last couple of weeks. The reason is because the MHRA took two weeks off on holiday for Easter, and uh, so they weren't providing the uh, the stats. So uh, we're a little bit behind this week, but it will be updated. Uh, uh, you know, in the next day or so.
0: So that's an interesting statement, isn't it? That they've had their holidays and uh, the fact that people have been dying or suffering life-changing injuries, that all has to wait while the MHRA staff have their holidays. That says a lot. But we've got this interesting article from the Daily Mail, uh, which has just popped up. You feel very strongly about this, Debbie, because of the warnings that you were uh, giving some time ago. But here's the headline: Intelligent. An ambitious trainee solicitor, 26, suffered excruciating headaches before dying from a blood clot after having AstraZeneca COVID vaccine, an inquest hears. Um, Now, this is a key subject because, uh, of course, at one stage we had the government saying to the public uh, as a whole, don't worry if you get a headache. It's a normal side, Mm -hmm. uh, side effect. I'll just follow up here with this. This is the MHRA in 2021, 7th of April. MHRA issues new advice, concluding a possible link between COVID-19 vaccine, AstraZeneca, and extremely rare, unlikely to occur blood clots. I'll let you respond uh, there, Debbie, uh, with your concerns, and uh, perhaps you tell us a bit more about the warnings that were put out previously But we can then uh, hear June Rain also speaking back in 2021 about the subject.
6: Well, clearly, Brian, AstraZeneca, um, I mean, I I think um, one of your viewers and and, and we do have um, quite a little community behind the scenes working alongside each other with regards to the MHRA. And um, one of our little group's questions, which I think um, I'd like to air publicly and maybe June Rain might listen, is can we perhaps serve the MHRA with a freedom of information to ask them to release the AstraZeneca data that they issued, that they, they read in order to issue the emergency use authorization? because we still haven't seen any of that, and clearly headaches, we did mention on UK column quite a while ago, that anybody suffering, and I think it was on no smoke in one of our no smoke interviews, that anybody with um, a headache that was prolonged, or more severe should seek immediate medical attention, especially after they've had the COVID vaccine. And of course, then we discovered that there was evidence of clots, and clots in the brain, after AstraZeneca. And then it was recommended that people under 30 shouldn't have the AstraZeneca jab. So these warnings have been around for a very long time. And we mustn't forget too, that whilst we're looking at the MHRA, this is a global situation. This is; These are serious adverse reactions coming in from all over the world. The FDA are reporting them, the EMA are reporting them, the MHRA are reporting them. So this is a global issue, not just UK. So clearly no one is wanting to debate any of these side effects or any of these life-limiting and life-ending um, tragic circumstances that we're seeing after this huge rollout. So it's, it's quite shocking.
0: Okay, well, let's, let's just have a look at this little clip, which is June Rain talking about the subject back in May 2021. This is the lady with oval.
7: Up to the 28th of April, there have been 242 cases of these specific kinds of blood clots with low platelet counts. And with over 28 million doses administered by that date, that's an incidence of 10.5 per million. In terms of second doses, we know that there have been six reports under evaluation, and with around six million second doses given, at that date, that is an incidence of one in a million. What this shows overall is that with support from the public and from healthcare professionals, our safety monitoring systems are working and working effectively. These extremely rare side effects have been identified and analysed by the best of scientific minds and enabled us to provide scientifically based, up-to-date information and advice to enable judgments on the use of the COVID-19 vaccine, AstraZeneca. I can confirm today that the position of the Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency remains unchanged, that the benefits of the AstraZeneca vaccine against COVID-19, with the associated risks of hospitalization and death, continue to outweigh the risks of the vaccine for the vast majority of people. There is therefore no change to the approval. The balance of benefits and risks of the vaccine is very favourable for older age groups, but it is more finely balanced for younger people, and so we advise that this evidence should be taken into account when considering the use of the vaccine.
0: My immediate response to that is she, she she can't claim what she's saying because the data isn't there and the accuracy of the data. Um, Debbie, this has been the pattern. I've got an eye on the clock. I'll just say we're getting a little bit short of time. But basically, um, there is no scientific evidence to show safety of vaccines.
6: No. On the contrary, there seems to be plenty of evidence now emerging to show that they're not safe. So... Come on, June Rain, um, you know, let's have a chat. I've invited her for a meeting. I've invited her to um, to talk to me either on Zoom or I'll go to London to Canary Wharf, where they're, by the way, opening the biggest wet lab in Europe. So the MHRA are going to be well-placed for that. That's just as a side, but I've offered to meet her, but as yet um, she hasn't responded.
0: Okay, thank you for that. And in the meantime, we've got more warnings coming up. So this is the government.uk website. News story, increase in hepatitis, liver inflammation cases in children under investigation. So we've got more unusual problems occurring, but no proper investigation. But very, very quickly on these two, Debbie, um, you picked up on the fact that uh, Beijing here uh, is getting uh, very tied up over COVID infections. Um, and uh, there's been a number of uh, reports about distress in Shanghai as a result of an incredible lockdown. Uh, but you also picked up that together with this, uh, there's reports, this one from Zero Hedge, about supply chain problems as a result of the lockdowns. If I just include this little extra graphic here, uh, which came from the Zero Hedge article, this is uh, showing that what they call the dwell time of uh cargo ships has increased um, as a result of uh, lockdown problems just very quickly what caught your attention with these two articles
6: okay so quickly go to um shanghai i think um we remember back to wuhan we were hearing the uh, news coming out of wuhan that there was lockdowns going on etc cetera, etc cetera. and it was a two or three months before before we got the story over here and we got the whole COVID. Uh, pandemic announced. And yet now we're seeing lockdowns going on in Shanghai, probably more lockdowns in Beijing. And if um, if your viewers and listeners want to go and look at an amazing guy on YouTube called Monkey Works, that's M-O-N-K-E-Y-W-E-R-X, he shows the most amazing, he's, he, he has all sorts of, of um, software, and he shows the amount of cargo ships and containers that currently are backed up on the Chinese coast and there are thousands and thousands of them. So it means that supplies aren't getting anywhere, there's a complete logjam and included in that are some medications and I'm sure maybe an extra we can talk a little bit about the the, the problems some women are having in getting HRT. We are also seeing um, with regards to food supplies now, we're being limited in the UK with regards to cooking oil and they say basic supplies will soon have to be um, to be monitored closely. So I think we need to keep an, an eye on Shanghai and Beijing and what's going on in China. And then with regards to the hepatitis story, the reason that I raised this is because a lot of people are raising it with me and from what I can see there seems to be two trains of thought one is a very interesting bit shoot with Dr. Kevin Corbett talking to David Clues, who's an epidemiologist. And he's been looking at the UKHSA advice. And he says that they're basically trying to pin this, they're trying to make everybody frightened of hepatitis and trying to pin it on COVID. And therefore parents must get their children vaccinated because apparently only 1.1% of five to 11 year olds have been vaccinated. So he's going on the theory that this is more fear. However, I've also found a paper called Immune-Mediated Hepatitis with the Moderna vaccine, no longer a coincidence, but confirmed. That's come from the Journal of Hepatology. Um, It's a Sheffield study, and they've seen a link with regards to the vaccination. So there's two trains of thought on that but I just want everybody to know that I am aware that this story is circulating, I'm aware that uh, figures seem to be increasing. Dr Kevin Corbett seems to suggest that they are looking, they are looking for cases in order to make it an epidemic in order to create fear. So there's two trains of thoughts, join the dots and, and, and do some more research, I certainly shall be and keeping you up to date with what I find.
0: Debbie, thank you very much for that. We will stay on the case and we'll do some more research and reporting on those issues. Thank you.
1: Um, Very briefly, we'll just mention that uh, we met, we were talking a couple of weeks ago about the ambulances uh, heading off to Ukraine. If you remember, Liz Truss had said, uh, we've sadly seen day after day, the horrific blah, 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 blah. Uh, I'm not going to even bother reading that. Uh, The UK has been among the biggest aid donors and now we're sending uh, you, uh, world-class NHS ambulances to help bring life-saving care directly to those injured uh, in the conflict. Uh, well, the um, the latest now is uh, well. First of all, we, before we mention the latest, I'll just remind everybody, of course, this again was something parallels with Syria because we saw this uh, we saw this uh, uh, in Syria a couple of years ago as well. Uh, but the latest news is the UK is now supplying 22 new ambulances to go to Ukraine. Uh, And that's in addition to the ones that were announced a couple of weeks ago from the NHS trusts. Uh, And they're going to be uh, equipped with paramedic kits, uh, medical grab bags. Uh, They're going to leave for Ukraine in a couple of days. And then they're going to be further convoys with more than 40 fire engines uh, packed with thousands of items of rescue equipment, including 300 fire hoses, 10,000 items of protective clothing and so on. But look, I just wanted to highlight a few headlines from today and the last couple of days on the issue of ambulances and the ambulance server service in the UK. So uh, the, this one, ambulance pressure is taking a significant toll on staff. Uh, the uh, I think there's Liverpool Echo saying ambulance delays are 20 hours reported. It's not the Liverpool Echo, but anyway, 20 hours reported in South Essex. Uh, Make your own way to hospital, says the mail, to save the NHS. Paramedic says crisis needs emergency measures, which could see ambulances only attend patients who are genuinely dying. Who makes that diagnosis? Uh, and then we go on Sussex Ambulance Staff are at breaking point uh, and so on. And South East Coast Ambulance Service response times worst on record as Kent Health Service at breaking point. Um, and so we are exporting ambulances out of the country uh, to a war zone, which we are stoking up as hard as we can. Uh, in the meantime, uh, no ambulance is available for people uh, in the UK. And Debbie, you know, earlier on you were saying Every, uh, sorry, in your in your speech, Truro, you you, you said uh, every GP still working in the NHS, and my question is, how many GPs are still working in the NHS? Because it is not possible to get a GP, uh, and you know our local surgery. Just to give a little bit of anecdotal evidence on this, um, was uh, two years ago you would walk past it, look in the window at the waiting room. The waiting room was packed, and there has been nobody waiting in that GP surgery for months. Uh, at any time. So so GPs aren't working, ambulances aren't working, A&E departments clearly under massive stress, barely functioning. This must be having a knock-on effect on mortality.
6: Completely Mike and and, you know we've been warning about uh, GPs and I actually wrote to my GP surgery at the beginning of the lockdown and I asked them under freedom of information if they had plans to close because according to the NHS long-term plan GPs are going to be available only via telemedicine. Um they're going to be replaced by community pharmacists. And like you, I walk past my GP surgery and the blinds are down, the doors are locked, the windows are closed. At one point during lockdown, I had a prescription flutter down through a top window to me. So GPs are going to go. You know, they're going to be a thing of the past. The family doctor has gone.
1: Yeah, okay. Uh, Thank you for that. Um, Alex, uh, we're just going to end with uh, this from, uh, well, it's actually from February from the British church newspaper.
2: Um we can perhaps talk about it more in extra time, but uh, the British Church newspaper, which is a small conservative publication, has given more detail than the national press did on a February announcement that effectively the established Church of England, the Church of England, is uh, turning itself into a political party. For overseas viewers, each of the four UK nations has its own uh, establishment arrangements and uh, in the matter of the church, so this is England specific there've been two consultation documents by the Church of England in February. In the first of them, the Anglican bishops have drawn up plans to form a shadow government. That's not too much of a leak by the editors of the British Church newspaper. The bishops want to be a shadow government. And uh, in the admission of some of the senior bishops, they're bored having dioceses, geographical areas. So the BCN reports that the archbishops and the Bishop of London, one of the, I think the number three in the hierarchy or fourth after Durham, um, says that the Church of England should be developing what has already been referred to as the Church of England's shadow government. Secondly, because some dioceses, notably in Durham in the Northeast, uh, they're down to the low tens of thousands per diocese now, uh, they're saying, well, forget the cathedrals and the parish churches. Uh, We want bishops to have portfolios, to have not a geographical responsibility going back 2,000 years in the church, but no, they must have a a policy area instead, full-time cabinet style roles in which they would drop the flock uh, called here ecclesiastic and evangelistic work, uh, drop the promulgation of the gospel and instead work up policy briefs with the aim of influencing government decisions. That which in the Thatcher era was derided as com- comedy, that the, uh, the bishops did the politics and the church and the, the government did morals, has actually become fact now. It's no longer being denied. So examples we see here, uh, if this had been in in effect a few years ago, might have been that there would be a bishop for Brexit or a bishop for Covid, it acknowledges in this document some senior bishops don't want to serve the flock anymore, reduce the dioceses from the present 42 which is happening to all our emergency services as well, roughly one per county for all these things historically but now one per region from now on, and there may be term limits for bishops whether dioceses, diocese, diocesan bishops, so that if they are unpopular uh, to the hierarchy for speaking too much truth they can be booted out. Uh, what is the other consultation document even more quickly? Net Zero Carbon Church of England by 2030. Bit of a blurry photograph by me, I apologize for that. People can freeze the screen when I've put it in fully, but they have, as you see here, 89 action points, most of which revolve around getting a Red Guard style youth in the church to go around zealously evangelizing for carbon uh, neutrality. By 2026, all dioceses must have audited everything in their land holdings to make them net. The C it now seems, believes very strongly in the gospel of the climate and in the gospel of politics, but the people running it don't want to preach the gospel anymore.
0: Wow. Okay. Um, I think that's my comment as well. Yes, and we have,
2: just to to remind people with this on screen, uh, no, that will go back to the previous slide and leave the other one, Um, here we are, if we put that on, uh, this is to remind people that you, Brian, were talking about this uh, a a good half decade ago, August 2016, you were talking about Lord Green, Philip Green, uh, being very keen on uh, the Church of England, and you put one of your famous snakes wedding diagrams up, showing how the Church of England was more interested in bankers and future leadership back then than it was in the Gospel. Yes,
0: yes, it's come home to roost, has not it? I, I believe this is en route to the one world religion, and that uh, requires more time to discuss. But if we're talking about one world government, alongside it comes one world religion, and of course, a one world military system and the, the European Union's military empire is, is clearly a part of that. Um, so uh, let's just end with an ad. finally, Alex.
2: Yes, Google Translate is known in Russian as Google переводчик. And if you type in Dear Russians in English, and uh, even before you hit enter, you'll get a tool tip, an auto cue. Uh, the, Google Translate will translate it for you, дорогие русские, which means Dear Russians. But the tip there in Russian in the middle says, Возможно, вы виду dead Russians. You may have intended to write dead Russians.
0: Right. OK. Uh, Alex, what's your take on that? Is that oh, this a, is an algorithm corpus-fed. problem or is that yeah.
2: malicious? G- Google Translate works on, a, on on brute strength corpus feeding. So what this indicates to us is that "dead Russians" is an extremely common phrase in the news corpuses, which inform Google Translate of what current English usage is. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Lovely. Okay.
0: Okay. Okay. Thank you all very much for that. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you very much to our viewers and listeners today. And of course, as always, a very big thank you to people who are donating or subscribing to the UK column because we can only do this with your financial support. And we'll also add that it is very much our intention to expand further in 2022, despite the uh, government's clear intentions to censor anybody that dares criticise its growing empire. So we'll say it's up to you, the viewers, if you like what we're doing, please support us.
1: Uh, back in a couple of minutes on the main live stream for some extra.
0: We'll see you then. Bye bye.